6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Tonight we're going to enter what some scholars like to call the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. You know, the book of Isaiah is, is regarded by many uh, scholars as the high ground of the Old Testament in terms of his vocabulary, his uh, articulation, and of course, the incredible diversity and intensity and uh, expression of his message. But the high ground of Isaiah is unquestionably chapter 53. Chapter 53 is so provocative, so dramatic, so specific that there has been a conspiracy among some of the rabbis to expurgate it from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament. If you find Bibles, Jewish Bibles, that have an Ashkenazi tradition, you'll discover Isaiah 53 seems to be missing. Now, it doesn't quite work because the Sephardic Jews did keep it. They have a hard time explaining that one. But all of this even gets more provocative in 1947 when they discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, that major event in archaeology. And among the finds, perhaps the most treasured of the finds, was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah from the first, first century or earlier. And what makes that, if you, when you visit Israel, and I'm assuming all of you, whether you go with us or whoever, you should pray about making that a commitment to go to Israel, because uh, somehow the Bible and all of those things take a whole new perspective when you actually walk those roads and see those places. But when you do go to Israel, I say when, not if, when you go to Israel, right across the street from the Knesset, essentially, is the Israeli museum, attached to which is a very specific building called the Shrine of the Book. Very beautifully designed building, uh, designed specifically to house the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you will want to go there. It's a lot to see and it's worth doing. But as you go in there, you will see, of course, the actual scroll of the book of Isaiah. And right in the middle of it, guess what? Chapter 53. So it's kind of an interesting issue. It's provocative that they recognize its significance in their attempts to tuck it away someplace. Isaiah 53 is also provocative in that it is mentioned specifically all through the New Testament. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. It's mentioned in the book of Acts. It's mentioned in the book of Romans. And it's uh, mentioned in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 in some detail. So we find the, the uh, uh, chapter 53 uh, widely uh, commented on in all four Gospels. Matthew 8, Mark 15, Luke 22, John 12. John 12 is my favorite place it's alluded to because, as you may, just by way of review, you know that in John 12, in verse 38, there is a quote from Isaiah 53. 
and it quotes the first verse of chapter 53, verse 38. Verse 40 quotes a passage that turns out to be from Isaiah chapter 6 on the occasion when Isaiah saw the throne of God. And it, in fact, says so in John 12. But the verse I love the best is the verse between those two quotations. We have a quote from Isaiah 53 and a quote from Isaiah 6, and right between them is verse 39, where it says, that same Isaiah said again. In other words, it authenticates the fact that whoever wrote Isaiah 53 also wrote Isaiah 6. It totally destroys the so-called Deutero-Isaiah theory. So if you believe in the New Testament, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've got no problem as to who wrote Isaiah. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you've got, of course, much bigger problems than the authorship of Isaiah. Before we get into Isaiah 53, though, and I think it would be fruitful for us to remind ourselves of a companion passage. There are two chapters in the Old Testament, prophetically speaking, that are probably without equal in the Bible. And Isaiah 53, of course, is one of them. But there's a companion passage that it, we, we benefit by having in our minds as we go forward. And that, of course, is one of the fam most famous Psalms. Psalm 22. And we might start our little excursion tonight by re refreshing our memory on that very, very provocative passage. There is a trilogy of Psalms, Psalm uh, 22, 23, and 24, all of which are very well known. Psalm 22 is the one we'll focus on. 23, of course, is the famous shepherd psalm, as we sometimes call it. And Psalm 24, the, the uh, psalm of the king of glory. The three seem to go together in a number of ways. But Psalm 22 is particularly provocative, written by David, and it totally baffles me as to what the real occasion was or how David was moved to put these words to paper. But clearly, it's Psalm of David, and yet the language reads as if it was the first person singular of our Lord himself as he hung on the cross. The first words and the last words of this psalm correspond to the first words and the last words of our Lord as he hung on the cross. It was written, call it eight centuries before Christ was born. Staggering in its implications, but let's read it. It opens up with that incredible declaration my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that, of course, echoes in our ears. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy. O oh, thou who inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, and a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Despised by the people. We're going to talk more about that. Very characteristic. Not just an incident, very characteristic of the mission he was on. But verse 7 and 8 particularly fascinate me, because they're so graphic. All they who see me, 
laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lips and they shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And how that echoes in our ears as they mocked him on the cross. He's going to come down. He's going to you know, destroy the temple. I'll raise it in three days. Well, let him, you know, just making fun. And here in the first person singular, we hear him quote all virtually the taunts and the jibes of the crowd. But thou art he who took me out of the womb, and this make me hope upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's body. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. The strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths like a ravening and a roaring lion. And now we start getting the medical aspects of this. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For the Gentiles have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. And then that interesting, interesting line. They pierced my hands and my feet. We read that and we're startled because here's such a vivid description of, of the events on that hill in Judea almost 2,000 years ago. And yet, what really makes it dramatic is when you do a little homework and discover that when this was written, it would be some 700 years before crucifixion was invented. If you were a Jewish prophet predicting the death of someone convicted of a capital, capital crime or whatever, you knew that the official form of punishment or death or capital execution by Israel was stoning. How would you have been moved to predict that he would have his hands and his feet pierced? That bizarre form of slow, torturous death was invented by the Romans about a century before Christ was born. It gives rise to the word in our vocabulary called excruciating. What does the word excruciating mean? Or more specifically, where does the word come from? What does it literally mean? From the crucifixion. Strange form of death. And I've, I don't plan to get into all the medical aspects of it. We've got a heavy enough evening, com evening coming anyway. But the whole concept one was one of slow, painful death by suffocation. A vector analysis of the body hanging from the arms would crush the breathing cavity, so the only way you could breathe would be to relieve the pressure by pushing up on the nails through the feet for moments, scattered moments of extension. The crucifixion, invented by the Romans about a century before Christ was born, yet described here by David eight centuries before Christ was born. They pierced my hands and my feet. I'm going to pause here, some impulse. You might turn to Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12 describes an event that's yet future. The opening verses of Zechariah 12 
It talks about Jerusalem is going to be a burdensome stone for all peoples. Verse 3, in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples. What a strange prediction that is. Here's a city with no natural resources, no harbor, no river, no reason to be significant. And yet, not only is it significant, it is the bone in the throat of every major world government today. The Islamic nations, of course, have their agenda. But the rest of the nations find themselves, one way or the other, burdened by Jerusalem. If there are late lights on at the State Department or the military headquarters of virtually every nation in the world, probability is high that they're discussing and what they're going to do relative to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Zechariah predicts in verse 3. When we get down to verse 10, we discover that this burden is going to be interrupted by a visitor. Verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me, God says, whom they have pierced. What an interesting identity phrase to find in Zechariah. What? Five, six centuries before Christ was born. Interesting. Back to Psalm 22. I may count all my bones, verse 17. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. They cast lots upon my vesture. How interesting. As he looks down from the cross, he sees them part his personal goods. But there's that seamless robe. They don't dare tear that up. So what do you do for that? What's only fair? We'll cast lots for it. How interesting that that particular detail stands out by the one who is the principal participant in this event. First person singular. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And it goes on. You can read it on your own. But that's the spirit of Psalm 22. Now in this spirit, let's take a look at what Isaiah talks about when he deals with what in effect is the same material, same subject, same event. Isaiah is going to do much more for us than simply describe the agony and the event. He's going to put it in doctrinal perspective for us. You'll discover that you can read all of Paul's epistles and not have much clearer a picture of what it's all about than you get from Isaiah's summary here in this chapter. But we're going to do something else. I want to remind you as you read the Bible, you know that these chapter divisions are man's convenience introduced about the 14th century, 15th century, not era. So they, in general, probably didn't do too bad a job, but remember their man's contrivances. And they're often not quite where they ought to be. Every time you read a key, especially a key chapter in the Bible, connect it with a couple of verses before to see if the chapter division is really where it belongs. Many, many places. 1 Corinthians 13, also lots of places. You can get a benefit by recognizing those chapter divisions are simply reference points, not necessarily a proper parsing of the message. In this case, most scholars, I think, recognize that this stream of consciousness starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. That's why we stopped a little short last time, because I really regard chapter 53 as beginning, in effect, at verse 13 of chapter 52. 
Behold, my servant. That starts it off. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Well, that can mean lots of things. What does the word extolled mean? It means to be raised up. And Jesus himself comments on what this means, strangely enough. You could say he's exalted in many ways. We exalt him in our praises. But that's not, I don't believe, what he's talking about. I believe he explained this word to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let's pop over to John 3. We all know John 3. It's the famous passage that leads to the cliché. It's a phrase that's really become, tragically, a cliché. To be born again. Nicodemus, one of the major rulers, teachers, comes to Jesus. And they have an interesting discussion, and we obviously won't digress in all of that. But in the middle of that, verse 14, Jesus says to Nicodemus a strange thing. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's a strange phrase. You have to remind yourself what happened back in Numbers chapter 21. The people were murmuring. They sinned. God sent a pestilence in the form of serpents with a deadly bite. And these serpents would bite people. They died. The people recognized that this was a response to their sin. And they went to Moses and said, do something. We confess, we repent, and all of that. So Moses prays, and God says, okay, take a brass serpent, put it on a pole, and put it up on a hill, and everybody that looks to that serpent will be healed. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you sort of sit back and say, that's weird. You know, I mean, if God wants to heal them, you'd think there would be more direct ways of doing it. God is doing something else here, isn't he? And I'm sure if you were Moses or some of his friends at that time, you're grateful that you had a remedy for the serpents, but I would imagine, I'm conjecturing, you're probably puzzled as to why that particular mechanic. Weird idea, isn't it? Everyone that looked to that brazen serpent was healed. And of course, you know the story, the brass serpent, that whole, that whole episode gets, gets carried to Alexandria and becomes the basis of some Greek legends. It's the background for Aesculapius, the Greek god of healing, and which, of course, is symbolized by a serpent on a, on a pole, the pole, of course, being a cross, interestingly enough. I'm always amused by that because you'll often find that on a license plate with two serpents wrapped around a pole. See, the guy that designed the symbol for the U.S. Army Medical Corps didn't do his homework. He knew about Aesculapius and the serpent on the, on the pole, but he thought to make it symmetrical, I'll put two, not knowing that that's not the symbol of Aesculapius, the god, the god of medicine. That's the symbol of Hermes, the god of commerce. And every time I see that on a license plate, I chuckle to myself at the candor of it all. You heard about the doctor who told the guy he only had six months to live. The guy says, I can't pay your bill. He says, no problem. I'll give you another six months to live. <laughs> it's interesting that that brazen serpent, of course, becomes a fetish. And hundreds of years later, Hezekiah has to destroy it because it's still around the people and they're worshiping it. You should remember that. 
whether it's the Shroud of Turin or some splinters from Noah's Ark or whatever, those things are dangerous, even if they're valid. The brazen serpent was valid, but it became a fetish. It's interesting that God doesn't use symbols in that sense. Satan does, whether swastikas or crescent moons or whatever. Okay, um, back to the subject. Jesus says in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. This is what we're talking about in Isaiah, being lifted up how? Like the serpent. Everyone that looked to the serpent of Moses was given life, didn't die from the serpents. Jesus says here in verse 15 that he'll be Son of Man lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Aha. Now we begin to understand why God had Moses do that peculiar approach to healing the people. Because it served another purpose. Yes, it was practical to them at the time, but it also serves as an instruction for us. You say, Jack, that's a strange symbol, though. A brass serpent? Why brass? Brass was the metal that Levitically speaks of judgment because brass was the metal that could sustain fire. So brazen altars, brass spoke of fire, of judgment. The serpent, of course, speaks of the curse, entrance of sin, Genesis 3. You know the story. You mean to tell me that a symbol of Jesus Christ is a brass serpent? Yes. That's strange to our understanding until we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just take a look at that to get that in our focus. Because my main conjecture tonight is that no matter how much you study the cross, it's my personal conviction that you'll never fully understand it. We'll talk about the cross physically. We'll talk about the cross in several other dimensions. But the more you learn of it, the more you will learn that you probably can't learn it all. 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21, it says that God hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You see, it's strange. We think of the brazen serpent as a symbol of Jesus Christ. But you see, at the cross, that's exactly what he was. The innocent, perfect, pure, unblemished Christ was made sin for us. And I submit to you that there's no way we can comprehend that statement. You and I had just a glimpse of what sin really is. The small glimpse we have terrifies us, if you understand. And yet, we also have but a superficial insight of what, what is righteous, what is a perfect, righteous Christ how can you make him sin? It's the two ultimate extremes. And yet that's what was happening on that hill in Judea 2,000 years ago. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, have eternal life. That's the issue tonight, my friends. Nothing you can do can add to it. Jesus Christ has completed on your behalf. What's your work? What's your job? What's your commitment? To believe it. To claim it. God has prepared a destiny for you that's so fantastic that there's no way you can earn it. There's no way you can be eligible for it. The only one eligible for it is Jesus Christ personally. 
And he's gone to some rather bizarre extremes to allow his eligibility to be available to you but for the asking. That's what Isaiah 53 is going to lay out for us. So let's get back to Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But then we get to verse 14, and this is an interesting verse. You know, the King James translators were probably among the most faithful team that's ever been put together for such a task. They did an incredible job, all things considered. We may, we may um, get discouraged with some of the old English and some of those problems, fine, but they certainly were devoted. But there are a couple of places, and this is the best known one, where they apparently deliberately softened the text because they didn't think you could handle the literal translation. Verse 14 always strikes me like double talk. As many were astounded at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man, dash, then he goes on. What does that mean? Not sure. But let's find out, and most of your study Bibles will have some equivalent footnote as the following, that the literal rendering of the Hebrew puts it right between the eyes. So marred from the form of man, was his aspect, that his appearance was not that of a son of a man. What does that mean? He was so beaten, so abused, so torn up that he was unrecognizable. And of course, just by way of remembrance, it's interesting that as we study his post-resurrection appearances, we can't help but notice some strange things. On the Emmaus Road, those two guys who were so upset that he was, uh, what happened the last three days, that when he joins them, they don't recognize him. These aren't strangers, these are disciples. And yet they don't recognize him. He gives them a Bible study. Speaks of himself in the third person. I always love that. They don't recognize him until when they're sitting down to eat, Jesus breaks bread. Our conjecture, just a conjecture, but our conjecture is that they saw the nail prints and realized who was among them. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.